Hi, Mary. Hi, Mary. Or Mrs. What? <laughs> Mrs. Ott. <laughs> I don't think I can say Mary yet. <laughs> there we go. How's it going? by Gwen Mercy Academy High School in Glennon Valley, Pennsylvania. My name is Erin Riemel, and I am the Director of Alumni Engagement here at Gwennon, a proud member of the Class of 2012 and the co-host of this exciting new podcast. As the Director of Alumni Engagement, I love connecting our students with our impressive network of alumni so they can learn from the inspiring women who walked these halls before them. We have career days every year, and we recently launched a new mentorship program, but we're always looking for opportunities to allow our students and graduates to meet and mingle. And we wanted to give our students the chance to dig a little deeper into the stories of our alumni and how Gwen impacted their journeys, hence the Monarch Impact Podcast. That's why we launched this new project as a student-run club in partnership with the Alumni Association. And speaking of students, I'm thrilled to introduce my co-host for today's episode, Gwen Mercy Jr., Dia Patel. Welcome, Dia. Could you tell us a little bit about today's guest? Yeah, of course, Mrs. Rimel. So Mary is a graduate of the class of 1975, and while she was a student, she was a member of Model UN and loved history and foreign language classes. She studied economics as an undergraduate in the School of Foreign Services at Georgetown University. Mary pursued a PhD in agricultural economics at the University of California, Davis, then spent a year teaching in the economics department at Georgetown University. Mary Ott joined the U.S. Agency for International Development, then retired as a career minister in 2016. Welcome, Mary. Thanks for being here today. Fine, fine. How exciting. So, kind of excited, kind of nervous. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and this is my first time with a podcast, so uh, I'm, I'm excited also to try this out, and um, it's a pleasure. Um, it's a pleasure to uh, see the school and to see students, and uh, this is also, for me, very exciting. All right, well, let's dive into it then. So your senior quote when you were at Gwened was, life may be compared to a piece of embroidery, of which during the first half of his time, a man gets a sight to the pretty right side and during the second half of the wrong. The wrong side is not as pretty as the right, but is more instructive. It shows the way in which the threads have been worked. What does that mean to you now? And if you could change it, what would you choose today? Well, I, it was really interesting to me that you came up with this quote. And uh, I remember at the time I, I was worried because I thought it was probably the weirdest, longest quote in your book. And I was, I was a little uh, trepidation of, of putting it in there, but I like it very much. Um, it's by the philosopher um, uh, Schopenhauer uh, of whom I have never read anything, but I saw this quote somewhere and it spoke with me. Because what it says to me is that the appearance of something may be pleasing, but knowing how it's put together is far more interesting. So I would I completely agree with that, and I would probably uh, you know if, if if I could find it would pick it again today because it's um, you know as, as I talked about you know my my life and work since Gwyneth you're going to see that there's there's in this you see me in this quote in certain ways, but let me give you an example that has to do with Gwyneth about 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 me and this quote. Um, one example I enjoyed very much at Gwynedd was the state was being on stage crew. Um, I had like, zero performance talent, but I was, it was really inspiring for me to watch how the plays were put together and um, to see all the different contributions and how a group of people you know, came together and all did their thing and, and made something great. 
So I was in charge of the spotlight. So I had like this great view, you know, of watching everything happen. And this ended up being an interest that I've carried with me my entire life. I really enjoy seeing plays and especially musical theater because I know what's going on backstage because I remember my stage crew experience. Oh, that's great. I was involved in the musicals here too at Gwinnett and I know it made a huge impact on me as well. So that's, that's a great context. Um, so what led you to choose your job and did it involve Gwinnett? Well, my choice of a major did involve Gwinnett, but not in the way you might imagine. Um, I was actually very grateful to have received a scholarship to attend Gwinnett. That was a huge life-changing opportunity for me and I guess also for my family. And before I attended Gwinnett, I was a student at a suburban parish school where everybody was from similar backgrounds. And when I came to Gwinnett, the girls I became friends with um, were from more diverse backgrounds, including some whose families were affluent. So I saw this in their homes, for example, when visiting. And then when I was 16, I started working in a local store similar to a Walmart. Um, I loved working there and I, I came to know people there whom I liked very much. And some of them were high school students like me earning their spending money, but others were from situations also outside my experience. I came to know other teens who had dropped out of school, who were hoping to join the military, for example, um, who were already married, who had children already. And I worked with some colleagues who were supporting families on a minimum wage job. And so, you know, when, in the last two years of high school, every day I was traveling between my school and my job, which were very different from one another in terms of the personal stories of the people I was hanging out with. And um, I recall at the time this caused like some dissonance or even confusion for me about my own place in the world, you know, which you, you think about a lot as a teenager and why different people ended up in different situations. And I was particularly like wondering why some of the people I knew at work tried so hard to get ahead without success. So, um, so when I was at Gwinnett around the same time, I enrolled in an intro to econ class at Montgomery County Community College. And my recollection um, was that I did this because it got me out of taking home economics. Um, but when I took this class, I felt almost a relief because um, economics gave me a framework to think about it, the experiences I was observing that I didn't have answers to that were hard for me to understand. And so I ended up majoring economics as an undergraduate and then also pursued it for a master's and a PhD. I was particularly interested in questions of economic opportunity, which is why, why my field within economics was um, international economic development. That's great. And it was so awesome that you had the opportunity to take college courses, too, when you were at Gwinnett. All right. Um, so what kind of clubs and activities were you involved at at Gwinnett? And how did this lead to your career path? Well, um, in addition to stage crew, um, I was involved in Model United Nations. Um, and the first year we were Dahomey, which is a small country in Africa now called Benin. And then the next year, I think we got promoted um, because Gwinnett was given Saudi Arabia, which was a better known nation, um, so a little more fun. Um, I dabbled in a few other activities over the years. Um, the one thing I didn't do was sports because I'm just not good at it. Um, um, but, but so those are the main ones. That's great. And I'm sure Model UN really kind of prepped you for all that work all over you know, the world that you've done so far in your you know, work with USAID. Well, it sparked an interest, I think. Um, and yes, it, it gave me a, a little bit of a feeling of what it was like to work in, um, 
in that environment. And then also when I was a senior, I think this was when I was a senior, um, we had a week to go and, and do like a career week. And I spent my um, week at the Canadian consulate in Philadelphia. And so I had a chance to sit in the diplomatic um, uh, office and uh, they were very kind. I was myself and another student, um, you know, to show us what it was like to be in a, a, dipl a diplomatic office. Very cool. Yeah. That's a great opportunity. Wow. So, wait. So going to having a college class during your high school career, what kind of student were you? And like, how did that prepare you for your life after graduation? Well, I think I took the college class to fill out a requirement that I was missing that couldn't be scheduled. It was probably something like that. Um, but I really liked my studies. Um, I especially liked the language classes. Um, I took Latin, French, and Spanish, if I recall. And I liked history a lot. Um, I initially, in early years of high school, I wanted to be an art major, but uh, it turned out I was really bad at the mechanics of it. Like I had good <laughs> art in my head, but I couldn't manage a paintbrush. And so, um, so I changed. Um, it would have been enough for me just to enjoy the studies. Like I was that kind of student. I was really into my classes. And one positive thing I think that uh, when it did was it tried very hard to make me more well-rounded. Um, in my personal life, I enjoyed reading. I enjoyed concerts, especially folk music. Um, I enjoyed crafts that were in vogue at the time, like macrame. And then um, after I graduated from Gwinnett, I studied at Georgetown University in the School of Foreign Service um, and in their economics program. And I found that my high school studies at Gwinnett had prepared me very well. I had no trouble doing the work or I, mean, I, I was just, um, it, it, sort of it was a proof that it was a very strong education that I had received. Fantastic. Yeah, I think that seems to be a trend with our graduates that they feel more than prepared for college before they leave you know, these halls, which is great to hear that you feel the same way. And as we mentioned in your introduction before you joined us on the podcast today, um, you are actually receiving a TROCARE Leadership Award at this year's reunion, which we're very excited to, to uh, give to you and recognize you for your work with USAID. So I was wondering um, if you could tell us a little bit about your work, you know, what, what got you involved in USAID? Um, you had so many cultural experiences and interests before that, but kind of what, what got you into that field of work? Okay, well, I have to tell you a little bit of the story about my studies to explain how I ended up at USAID. Um, I studied agricultural economics at the University of California at Davis and uh, for both my master's and PhD. And um, I am not a farm girl, um, but agricultural <laughs> economics is applied economics. And that, that was what I wanted. And I did learn some things about agriculture that ended up being useful. So my doctoral research um, was about whether a person in a poor country without much formal edu education could succeed based on the skills they acquired in their jobs. And I also wanted to look at um, whether income would rise for workers who were learning skills on the job as opposed to learning them in school. Um, you can sort of see like the, the mindset, it was the same mindset I had that got me to start in economics. It was this question of opportunity and, and what was available for people who, who, you know, sort of weren't handed opportunities, at, you know, early in, early in life. So for this specific research, I lived in Honduras for a year. And Honduras has a lot of wood as a resource and there was a well-developed furniture industry there with companies of all sizes. 
So I traveled by bus and taxi all over to interview furniture workers, furniture makers on the factory floor at their job. I actually sat with them in front of their lathe or in front of you know whatever machinery they were operating so that they could explain and show me the work they did. So I heard from them about their work, how they learned how to do it, what education they had, and their family circumstances. And then I also talked to the company management about how they felt about their laborers and where they looked for them. And um, I actually accidentally got with, sprayed with shellac once or twice, which is not a good look for me. But um, <laughs> I, I, met, I met a lot of really interesting um, people among the workforce of these, these companies, both men and women, and you know, sort of heard their, heard their stories. Um, so then I wrapped up my data and brought it back to UC Davis, ran it through the computer, and then, then wrote it up, and that was my thesis. And this makes me sound old, but I did this with no personal computer because they didn't exist at the time. This was all hard copy, and then I had to run it on the mainframe. That sounds tough. Yeah. But anyway, this is not, I, I think this was not a very usual way for a 24-year-old to spend a, spend a year, but it was quite an experience. It was like a really life-changing experience for me to have that opportunity to see so many people at work and hear about their work and, and, and hear you know, and again, hear about people who were, you know, were trying to get ahead. So, you know, what did I learn from this study? Uh, you know, I don't want to belabor my, my, my research, but um, one thing that surprised me was the smaller the company, the more worker learning took place, and that translated into income for them. Um, but anyway, this is a very long introduction uh, when, to when I was in Honduras, I met some mentors who worked for USAID who actually gave me a place to stay in their house when I was interviewing. Uh, workers in Tegucigalpa, which was the capital. So that was what got me interested in USAID because they talk about their work at the dinner table. So when I finished school, I taught economics at Georgetown University for a bit, but I actually wanted something that would take me back overseas and was very happy when USAID offered me a position as an economist. USAID's mission says that on behalf of the American people, we promote and demonstrate democratic values abroad and advance a free, peaceful, and prosperous world. What connected you to that? And how did you try to integrate that into your work? Well, to give a little background, um, I think you're aware that um, USAID, that stands for the US Agency for International Development, and it's a federal agency charged with leading international development and humanitarian efforts by the United States to save lives, reduce poverty, strengthen, strengthen economic governance, and help people progress beyond assistance. And you'll see this written on our website. Um, USAID has nearly 10,000 employees who serve in more than 100 countries around the world. And um, the agency was established by President Kennedy in 1961 uh, as an agency devoted to social and economic development to improve the lives of the poor in developing countries. And so, um, you know, as you read, our mission statement expresses these ideals. Um, you know, when you work for USAID, pretty much all of your work is dedicated towards fulfilling the agency's mission, because that's what a mission statement is, is supposed to do. And in turn, um, it reflects, um, you know, as a, a USAID employee, it reflects our commitment to the American people whose generosity makes this work possible. So uh, during my time in USAID, and particularly when I was working as an economist, um, I worked on education, health, small business, agriculture, pretty much like any area, because as an economist, I was attached to the design teams for these kinds of um, programs. But there is something I wanted to say about democracy, um, which is, is um, part, you know, a big part of our um, agency mission. Uh, we work in many areas related to democracy. Some examples are helping countries train their judges or combat corruption. 
But one area of democracy that's common to almost all of USAID's programs is the little d democracy of encouraging local participation in communities. Um, you know, when you live in the United States, um, you know, all of us volunteer, all of us are involved with organizations. And, uh, you know, this is a tremendous contribution to, um, to a nation when, when, you know, sort of everybody is doing this. And it's a, a, a value that we try to build in, you know, a democracy value we try to build into our programs. So um, any program USAID undertakes is guided by the aspirations of the communities where um, USAID and, and all of our partners work. And this was especially important for women to make sure that women were contributing, you know, are contributing to the decisions made in their community, providing input to our programs and getting involved. So um, that's why I thought a good theme for today might be girls' education, because um, uh, our own family certainly knew this was important when they sent us to Gwinnett. And uh, you know, our families made sacrifices. Uh, some made financial ones and some made carpool sacrifices and um, policing the homework sacrifices. What was it like working as a woman overseas with USAID? Well, I, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but I think you're probably making, I, I think you're making a really good point about going to an all-girls high school. I was never daunted or like bothered by um, being in environments where um, women were underrepresented because I, I had confidence in myself and it, you know, it was just, um, you know, sort of a feature of, of where I was, but not anything that held me back. Um, so my, my experience is varied by country. In, in Central America, where I spent many years and in Egypt, um, women were fairly well represented in government and in local organizations and including in, um, in senior roles. In fact, in Egypt, interestingly, women gravitate to government work because it's, um, in Egypt, it's very family friendly. So in those countries, the counterparts I worked and interacted with were a mix of men and women. And this was the same as my colleagues in, in the USAID office. Um, there, were, there weren't many female economists in USAID because there just aren't many female economists relative to other professions. But our work was multidisciplinary. I was usually the only economist in the mix, and so I didn't feel it because um, women were more represented, you know, you know, the health officer, the education officer, and other, other colleagues, you know, with whom, you know, we all work together. The one place that I had a different experience was in Bangladesh. So there, while my USAID colleagues and some of the local partners had a good representation of women, most of the government offices did not. Um, the head of state at the time was a woman, but at lower levels, the civil servants were mostly men in the sectors we were working with. So my experience was I would go to speak at conferences or I'd go to meetings and I could be the only female in the room. And it was um, interesting because often I was most, the most senior US government representative in the room. So um, you know, I was the one who was doing the speaking from the American delegation. So I, um, this wasn't a barrier in any way, but um, it, I felt like we were having learning experiences, all of us, you know, the um, American side and the Bangladeshi side, when we were coming to meetings with a more diverse, say, delegation than, than what, you know, with, with what was in their, their delegation. Can you talk about your experience in Egypt? What was it like being able to support the development of girls STEM in high schools? Okay, well, I was assigned to Egypt um, twice for a total, I spent a total of five years living and working there. I was first there as the deputy mission director from 2003 to 2006. And then I came back for two more years in 2013 as the mission director. Um, USAID calls its overseas offices missions. So you'll hear me use that word. 
My second tour in Egypt was harder than the first because I was there during a time of civil unrest. And during the first year, um, for a number of months, most of the American staff and their families were evacuated and were working from Washington, DC. So I found Egypt to be a uniquely fascinating country. Um, its cultural treasures you do not see anywhere else because it combines both Pharaonic, Biblical, and Greco-Roman antiquities. And so um, it was just an amazing environment to, to sort of study the past. Um, Egyptians are welcoming and wonderful people, and my experiences there were really memorable. So to give a little history, USAID has, uh, has been working in Egypt for a long time with a large program that came out of the uh, Camp David peace accords, I think, which were 1978, that were brokered by President Carter between Egypt and Israel. One of the programs we were working on when I was head of the Cairo mission was, uh, the uh, USAID mission in Egypt, was developing specialized science and technology high schools. We and our partners supported Egypt's Ministry of Education to establish STEM high schools, which are similar to magnet schools that you would find in the United States. STEM means science, technology, engineering, and math. The plan was for the initial STEM schools to be boarding schools and to have schools for both boys and girls. And I wanna give a shout out because the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia was one of our partners in developing the curriculum and training the teachers for Egypt's STEM schools. So the first girls STEM school opened just before my second tour in Egypt. And since it was in Cairo where my office was located, I had the opportunity to visit several times. Um, the school was one of the first two, more than a dozen that USAID has supported over the past 10 years. And sometimes when we do something, it has a bigger purpose. And in this case, starting these schools was a path towards developing curriculum, training teachers and recruiting students to improve science and mathematics education overall throughout the education system. Like you start something and then what you're doing kind of seeps into everything else. So that, that was part of the objective. So sending a daughter to boarding school was an unusual experience for an Egyptian family. And for me, it was really gratifying to see how many Egyptian girls applied and how families stood behind their daughters to help them succeed. We felt that when we were acquainted and I, I, I got to see this again in Egypt. Um, their curriculum is really practical. It's oriented toward um, finding technical solutions to Egypt's problems like pollution or water supply. The girls were like super confident and um, my expectation is they're gonna become leaders in the future. The first students I knew did very well. Um, they were, you know, they designed some very interesting solutions, um, I think to, uh, to pollution, I think uh, was one I remember. They won prizes in local and international science fairs and many eventually received scholarships for college. So I, you know, this was a very heartwarming project for me because it took me back in my mind to my days at Gwynedd. Were there any specific events that occurred while you were there that stood out to you? Why do you think they stood out so much? You know, I was debating this question because the, the thing I really want to say about it is kind of weird, but um, I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to tell you about it. Um, this is not about girls' education. But a memorable project for me was one where we collaborated with Egypt to upgrade water and wastewater infrastructure in Egyptian villages along the Nile. The rising water table there was making the traditional systems dysfunctional, which really harmed the quality of life in the villages where these services were you know, unreliable. And so it, when we talked about this, basically what I'm talking about is like sewer and water pipes. And it was hard to get people excited about them because they're underground. And you know, I would get questions of, you know, like, well, will people even know we're helping them if we do these, these programs? And um, so I wanted to 
bring a clearer picture of the benefits to um, USAID's work in this area. So I uh, went to visit a few of the communities we had helped and actually went door to door myself, asking the families how they found their, you know, their new water and, and sewer pipes. And we heard really amazing stories of, of how people's lives had been changed. Um, you know, for, for example, people could take showers without their sewage backing up. Um, their streets and homes were flooding. I mean, this had made just a huge difference. And so um, when I look back on my time in Egypt, this was one of the experiences I really remember because, um, uh, you know, we do these programs and, and sometimes you don't see the results. Uh, you know, you leave before the results are visible or, or um, you know, you don't have the opportunity to go there. And I was really um, pleased to be able to go and, and see, you know, that this work had been transformational. And I, the, the picture I provided for the award is a picture of me visiting one of these villages. What was the most gratifying part of your work in Bangladesh? Well, I was actually in Bangladesh before Egypt. And um, I was there in the, I went there in 2000. Uh, this is quite a bit, quite a long time ago. Um, so to answer your question, I wanted to talk about um, my experience um, working to bring Sesame Street to Bangladesh. And um, Bangladesh is a small country. I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this. It's uh, next door to India. Um, today, it has about 165 million people living in a delta plain that's just a little bit bigger than Pennsylvania. It's like, like 1.3 times Pennsylvania. Now, Pennsylvania is 13 million people. So think about 13 million versus 165 million um, in a similar space. So um, I found working there a tremendous experience. Um, if you're interested in development, there are many outstanding organizations based there that have created models for development that are, are emulated um, around the world. And the country has done well. It is not as poor today as it was when I arrived there in 2000. Um, in 2000, the annual per capita income for Bangladesh was about $400, while in the United States for the same year, it was about uh, $36,000. So that gives you an idea of how, how large the gulf was. Um, between um, conditions um, in the US and Bangladesh. So I was sent there as the deputy director of USAID's mission. And in my second year, the director position was vacant. So I was in charge. And we were offered a modest amount of money to start an education program, but asked that it be national in scope, you know, in, in a country with quite, quite a big population. Um, I think it was 130 million at that time. So we had to think about what was possible in a small, flat, and densely populated country, and it led us to consider some sort of mass media program. So in Bangladesh at that time, people had access to radios and televisions, but at that time, they did, there were not computers or cell phones really in, in many people's hands. So in thinking about working in education in Bangladesh, another challenge I recall that we, we looked at was the length of the school day. Bangladesh had made great achievements towards getting more children into school, but the way they had accomplished this was having different shifts at the same school building. So for a first grader, a school day might be just a couple of hours, but they had free time out after school. So it, we came to conclude that maybe education delivered by television or radio outside the classroom might be our option. So USAID as an agency had supported development of Sesame Street programming in Egypt and South Africa. And that seemed a possible model for us in Bangladesh. So I think pretty much most people in the United States know, you know what Sesame Street is. Um, it was a highly innovative when it got started, which was around the time I was attending Gwinnett. In fact, one of the spirit night acts when I was there was Sophomore Street. So, um, so Sesame workshop does, workshop does not 
simply export a dubbed version of Burton Ernie. When it comes into a new country, Sesame Workshop develops from scratch a program that is true to the values and culture of the country and to its educational curriculum. Um, initially, no one was sure this idea could work. Um, for example, because incomes were so low in Bangladesh at the time, the licensing of products like stuffed animals, which support sesame productions elsewhere, was not going to be as feasible. Um, we knew that most poor families did not have their own televisions, but many shared sets with neighbors. Some communities didn't have electricity. Uh, we also had the task of encouraging Sesame Workshop to come to Bangladesh to take a look and to consider introducing the entirely new concept of educational children's TV to Bangladeshis. So we discussed this and um, in the end, my headquarters and Sesame Workshop came to agree to pursue a program in Bangladesh. And over the next two years in Bangladesh, we were on a mission to, together with Sesame Workshop, of bringing together educators, television networks, government officials, non-governmental organizations, and other partners to, to explain what this was and to make a Sesame Street style program possible. For example, puppetry is an ancient art in Bangladesh. They're actually little puppet theaters. I think I hope they still travel around. They did at the time I was there. And so we involved the local puppeteering uh, community as we developed the program. And so the end result was Sisampur. Sisam means sesame and poor means place in the Bangla language. And it was the first educational television program in Bangladesh. So Sisampur starts stars a little girl Muppet named Tuktuki and a tiger named Halum and is set in a rural village. It celebrates rural life in Bangladesh. So the program, like all the other Sesame Streets, gets children ages three to six ready for school by teaching letters and numbers. And then important in Bangladesh, it taught um, lessons about safety and about hygiene, including hand washing and toothbrushes. The uh, characters in the show project gender equality and you know, the uh, main Muppet is a little girl. And we, with Bangladeshi creative, uh, creative Bangladeshi solutions, um, we were able to address all the different technical problems that were involved in, in bringing uh, Sesame Street type programming to, Bang to Bangladesh. For example, um, they worked out a method of circulating televisions with batteries to different villages using rickshaws. So my tour of duty ended in 2003, which was just before System 4 started filming. So I, have, I was not present to see the whole story unfold. And this is part of being in the foreign service in USAID. You work on your, you work on your piece and then you move on and it falls to others you know, who sequentially keep working because development efforts take, take years, decades, generations to, um, to be fulfilled. And you, know, you, uh, you see the progress, you see the short-term progress, but then over long-term you, you see the full story. So the full story here is um, Sisampur has celebrated its 17th birthday. It's the top children's educational program in Bangladesh. Research has shown that access to Sisampur raises educational attainment for Bangladeshi children. And the episodes are posted online if you would like to see this. It is quite a joyous program. Um, it's, uh, I think we all in USAID feel very proud of it. So I would end this little story by saying that like the Cairo STEM schools, um, this is an example where USAID fulfills its mission by bringing together the best of our own country, you know, magnet schools, Sesame Street, with the best of our partner countries. And we have worked with many partner organizations from both the US and local ones in this effort. 
So um, I feel so thankful that the American people support this work worldwide, and I feel so thankful to have been a part of it. Sissom Poor has made an immeasurable impact on children's lives. How does it feel to be a part of something that has helped so many? Were you able to see the impact that Sissom Poor had on young children? The, the, the heroes in the story of the help to so many children are the American um, taxpayers who make this possible. And uh, you know, I, I need to repeat that because you know, as, as, a, as a person working for the U.S. government, you are, you know, you are working for the American people, and that that is how we feel about the work we do. Um, and I um, I feel pleased. Uh, in looking back, I mean, I it was exciting for me to go back and look. You know, I looked at various um, things I had worked on early in my career. You know, in, in preparing for this. Um, the STEM schools and, and system for are two, you know, very interesting stories. Some projects maybe weren't so successful or they wrapped up early and, you know, they did their good work and wrapped up early. But, you know, these, these ones you can start, you can see that there's a long-term benefit um, to the work we do. What I wanted to um, emphasize is this is definitely a team effort. It wasn't me personally. I mean, I was trying to describe all of the different organizations that came into this both local and, and, and from our own country. And I mean, this is an effort that's, um, it takes a whole community to, uh, <laughs> to undertake. So do you have any advice that you would have given yourself when you were attending Gwinnett as a student? Well, as you can probably pick up from my story, um, I was like somebody who's been like focused like a laser since early in life on, on certain objectives. And when I look back at this, you know, now being an older person, I wonder, I think I should have been pushed or I think I probably was pushed and didn't cooperate, but um, I should have been pushed to, to do more activities. I should have investigated more things. I sometimes worry, uh, you know, were there possible interests I missed out on that would have been enriching to my life? And, um, you know, so, some of us are more naturally like joiners of, of activities than others. And, um, you know, the, I guess, you know, if I would um, give advice, it would be for people to try things that they might, on the surface of it, think they're not interested in because maybe they'll find something that's far more um, fascinating than they, they saw at first blush. And what, what, what's one piece of advice that you would give to future Gwinnett girls? Let me answer that question in two ways. Um, so in, in like the narrow way, if you would like a career in international development, um, you know, I think looking at USAID's website or um, other development agency websites, you can see the sort of fields that are involved in that. And it's a broad range of fields. There's probably something in there for everyone. So that might, you know, help you find an interest in a, in a major. Um, you know, specifically how you go about ending up working um, overseas in, in, in a job like mine. Um, a lot of my colleagues got their start in Peace Corps. So uh, signing up for Peace Corps when you get out of college is, is a pretty good path. And others um, got jobs through um, organizations that were um, involved in humanitarian efforts. You know, they had jobs with, uh, um, you know, refugee programs overseas or um, other kinds of international programs where you had some sort of assistance being delivered by um, either American charitable organizations or, or even by, um, by USAID through partners. Um, you can apply to the State Department. Um, basically, anybody can apply to the State Department to be a diplomat. They have a, a test. Um, you, you sort of, you take a test 
And if you pass the test, they interview you. And so they're, um, they're pretty open to getting a broad, you know, diverse um, representation of America, you know, in their, um, uh, in their overseas workforce. And, you know, if you're interested in, in things international, it would be always a good thing to, to see if you can um, pass the, the State Department uh, Foreign Service test and, uh, and, and start a career that way. Um, USAID uh, hires um, most of the occupations require a master's degree and some um, overseas experience. And so, um, you know, doing some of these other things first might be a shorter route into USAID. But that said, there are other paths into USAID. So if you if you look at the agency website, you can you can see the kinds of hiring that are done. Now, let me say something broader. Um, what advice would I give to people, including Gwinnett Mercy students, based on my own experiences? And I feel like my life has been very enriched by all of the interactions and friendships I've had with people whose lives and backgrounds are really different from my own. Um, certainly, this was true because I spent a lot of time living overseas, meeting and you know hanging out with people you know who were you know from different places. Um, as one example, I put my children in the French government school in Bangladesh and ended up serving on the school board. You know, where I was like the only American with, and I learned how, uh, you know, how uh, French uh, people run meetings. It was a wonderful experience, actually. And I, I, I learned new things and, you know, and uh, met new people largely thanks to my Gwinnett Mercy French classes, because it was the very first time I actually had to use my French um, in life. So I learned from that experience. And um, I think there's a temptation to stay in a comfort zone or a bubble of people who are very like yourself, who, who kind of view things the same way as yourself. But um, there's the real risk of missing out on a lot if you do that. I mean, people are amazing. All people are amazing uh, in my view. And um, it's good to be open to know as many different types of as people as possible. So my recommendation in general would be to try and broaden your circles to include people whose stories are different on your own. As many of you know, we celebrated Reunion 2021 on October 23rd, and Mary, as well as seven other women, received the TroCare Leadership Awards for their leadership in various fields. Mary, specifically for the government and le legal category. And of course, uh, we have all of that information at gmahs.org slash alumni slash reunion, and you can read all about Mary and her fellow awardees there. And if you know an alum who is doing amazing things in the world, please be sure to nominate her on our website so that she can be recognized next year at Reunion or in future years. Thank you.